This episode of the Commerce Marketer Podcast is brought to you by Bronto Software, the leading email provider to the global internet retailer 1000. For more ideas on how to improve your marketing automation and to take your email to the next level, visit www.bronto.com resources. The brand loyalty and revenue potential from email is huge, but only if your messages make it to the inbox and compel your subscribers to open and act. Your success at delivering emails to your subscribers can make or break your email marketing program. And yet many marketers still don't fully realize how the importance of deliverability and don't have a good understanding of how to improve and protect it. Today, I want to change that. Welcome to the Commerce Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Zakowitz. And today we're going to talk about email deliverability, tackle some myths, best practices to follow, some never do's, and a whole lot more. To join me for the conversation today, I welcome to the show the Director of Deliverability here at Bronto, Chris Kolpenschlag. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Greg. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. No problem. Uh, so, Chris, I would normally ask you for some background on your company, but that seems like a, a pretty direct sales pitch for Bronto. So instead, why don't you give the audience a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into deliverability, and, and kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis now? Sure. So I go way back, you know, a good 20 years now where um, I first started in this world of deliverability with just a simple email reply handling where people would write in and say, hey, how did I get on this? Or I don't want this anymore. And I started to see people using the F word in ways I've never seen it used before, which really kind of made me wonder why they were doing that. To find out, they never really did sign up. So, you know, prior to the Can-Spam Act in 2003, deliverability really wasn't the, the buzzword it is today, but there were some issues already brewing in regards to receiving unsolicited email. So just simply back in a time when I was reading the mail and it just kind of set me on this journey of, Hey, you know, these people are really angry. They don't want this mail. What's going on. And just remember saying, Hey, this isn't right. And I wanted to help them out. So, you know, here 20 years later, I'm still working to defend those people who don't want to receive unsolicited email, but at the same time, help our clients and relevant and wanted email. And, you know, deliverability is just a huge, important part of that. But sometimes and it's forgotten, which is why I'm excited to, to be on here today. Thanks for the background, Chris. We're going to go through some of the specifics today on deliverability. But from a very high level, what are some of those most important aspects that someone needs to have good deliverability, if that's something you can sum up uh, somewhat cleanly? Yeah, thanks. It, it, and it's a great question and, and one of my favorite and most popular to discuss, right? Because it's like, well... What do I need to do for deliverability, and why is it? You know, what, what, how do I either fix it or you know how do I make it strong? And I always answer it with two simple words, which is permission and relevancy. So deliverability starts, in my opinion, with with permissions. You have to have that person you're sending to knowingly, consciously saying, you know, raising their hand and saying, "Yes, I would like to hear from Greg um, weekly." Or, or daily, you know, kind of setting those expectations, but having them raise their hand knowingly to say, this is what I want. Second, you know, once you have that permission, you obviously have to keep them engaged. You, you have to keep relevancy important. Because if I sign up for Greg's newsletter, you know, uh, about, you know, an auto mechanic tip of the week, and you start sending me recipes for cookies, you know, while I raise my hand to hear from you, you lost me on relevancy. So I will unsubscribe or you know, worse is I'm going to click on the, this is spam button. So you got to keep both. Um, but for the main part, again, at a high level, you have to have the permissions, you have to have relevancy 
and you will have very strong deliverability results in regards to getting email delivered and getting it into the inbox. So when you say having the proper expectations there, we, we might get into this and wind up circling back to it, but I'm envisioning someone going maybe to a store and being like, oh, Greg, what's your email address while I'm checking out? And I give them my email address. And then they probably start marketing to me, assuming that's an opt-in for the email address. So they might have been opting me in. They may have even said, hey, would you like to join our email program or can we send you an e-receipt, blah, blah, blah. My expectation just wasn't that they would sign me up, even though they might have thought they were. Is is that a good description of it? Absolutely perfect one. You know, point of sale that's where a huge part of communication breaks down. There's assumptions there. There's implied consent. You know, hey, can I get your email address? And if it's not clear what that email address is being collected for, you have issues, right? If it's, hey, can I have your email address to send you this receipt? I'm expecting a receipt. If it's, can I have your email address to send you future coupons? That's a whole different expectation of I'm going to get a one-time email versus I'm going to get a daily or weekly email. So, Excellent example of being clear, why am I asking for your email address to set those expectations? Because if I get home, I get the e-receipt, and then all of a sudden I'm getting three more emails daily on a newsletter. Maybe you had my permissions, or you just didn't set expectations at the store. And I love your product, but I'm getting three emails a day, and this is just overwhelming. Awesome. I'm going to get into some myths here in a minute. I do want to take a step back real quick, because we're just kind of talking shop here. We both work for an email provider, Cobranto. But email deliverability, we can have good deliverability, but still wind up in the spam folder, correct? So can we define deliverability real quick? Absolutely. That's a a great point because I I talk to people and I have 100% delivery rate. That's great. But the next question is, where is it being delivered to? So you can send out a million emails. I can get a million records back that they were all delivered. But the next question is, where were they delivered to? Which could be the inbox, could be the spam folder. So we look at both, did it make it to Gmail? And then second, when it got to Gmail, where did it land? So it's kind of a two-part. There's an actual delivery, which is to the ISP. And then the second part is, where did it land? I'm going to skip around a little bit just based on my own notes here. But let's talk about things that can kind of get you in the spam folder. So there's a lot of myths that go along with deliverability, right? We can talk about, and we will talk about IP versus domain-based reputations, things like this. Common myths and conceptions. Hey, if you use the word free in the subject line, you're going to go to a spam folder. Now, every subject line I get has free shipping somewhere in there. So I'm going to say that's false. There might be instances where that might be true, maybe industry vertical or something, but any truth whatsoever to the word free being a subject line spam trigger. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite ones to answer on pre-sales calls and talking to current clients because they'll call up and they'll ask exactly that. Hey, you know, can I use the word free? Can I put two exclamation points in there? Can I put maybe three? And the reason I enjoy it is I like to bring up some of our clients who are in the adult toy business. And, you know, I, I try and tell them to imagine the content that's in those emails and challenge them to beat that content in the sense of what we feel is spammy or not. I mean, if you read some of those emails and the product descriptions, it's, it's pretty heavy, you would think, as spammy. And guess what? Those folks get to the inbox. All of our adult toy clients do not have deliverability issues. And if you saw the images, if you saw the words, your mind would be blown of these people get into the inbox, and they do. They have phenomenal open rates. They have phenomenal delivery rates. 
They never call into my team for issues because they're doing it right. Why? They have strong permissions. They obviously set expectations of what they're going to be getting and they have great engagement. So when someone calls saying, is the word free going to get me in trouble? And I kind of use that example as don't worry about that word free. Now, there's a second part to that. So for, for B2B, when sending to Gmail, Yahoo, we don't worry about that. But when we get into B2B, that's when maybe sometimes we can look at words because the ISPs, the main ISPs for B2C are looking at you, the person. What is your reputation, Greg? What do people think about you? They don't care what you really look like physically. They don't care about your shirt, your shoes, you know, going back to those words again. I look good today too. <laughs> He'd be in the inbox today. <laughs> so they, they look past that to what do people think of Greg? And, you know, I kind of like to say Gmail is like the judge and Gmail subscribers are the jury. So the, the, the judge is going to go to the jury and say, okay, folks, what do you think of Greg? And based off of engagement metrics, based off of, you know, highly towards do people say Greg's emails are spam? The, the judge, which is Gmail, says, hey, my people have spoken. Greg's a good guy. I'll continue him into the inbox, even though that shirt he's wearing may be hideous. It's a cool shirt today, but <laughs> let's pretend it's a hideous shirt. So it's really not about what you look like. So it's really not about the words. Now, for B2B, they, they don't have the ability to ask their subscribers for their opinions of you. So then they rely more back to what you actually do look like. So they do revert back to some old technology of content. So we got to be more careful about some of those free words, loans, applications, those types of things, more on the B2B. But it's very rare to have that in a B2C situation. That's primarily because you're not dealing, for the most part, you're not dealing with Gmail type when you're going B2B. I mean, there, there are people like me that get B2B stuff and I sign up with an alternate Gmail address. But generally, you're going through like Outlook type servers and like company firewalls, right? Yeah. All right. So how about, it's common practice. So I'm going to say that this also is false, but using emojis or characters in the subject line would trigger potential spam complaints. I'm going to assume that's false as well. It's false. For the same reason. Yeah. I have yet to have a phone call or an issue or a client called in and we found out that that emoji they're using in the subject line is causing issues. I've never come across it. My team's never come across it, but it kind of goes back to what we're talking about. ISPs really don't care too much, if at all, what you are wearing as long as your reputation is good. Because, you know, one of the other things I forgot to mention, you know, I kind of talked about the adult industry. I, I challenge people to beat their content. But I've also seen where people send out an email about, you know, a puppy dog and how awesome they are. It's, it's very clean. And they go to the spam folder. So that company may look at an adult toy store and be like, really? They get into the inbox and I don't? And it goes back to what's your reputation? Right. For anyone listening, if you haven't listened to a previous episode, it's either one or two ago, I don't remember, but we had an adult industry guest that talked about how they improved their email marketing program. They were talking specifically about deliverability. So uh, go back. It might have been episode 45, but go back and check it out. Okay. How about this one? Outside subject line, external click tracking within the link. So we have clients and retailers from around the world do this. They'll put extra snippets of code in their link. So it could be Google Analytics tracking, but any sort of link tracking. I haven't seen it. I would just say kind of goes with advertising, but know your partners, know who you're working with, know what link you're throwing in there. Because a lot of times, you know, I did mention that it's really not your content, but, you know, there's some scenarios where a link could cause you issues. It's been a while since I've seen it, but, you know, I, I remember well used to do it years ago. We'd contact them and they're like, there's a link in your email we don't like. 
so I always kind of keep that in my head that if you're adding links or doing stuff to links, just, just know your partners and know what you're putting in there. How about size of the email? So obviously the larger the email gets, the slower it's going to be to open, which can cause, I mean, future engagement issues. I've got to assume if you're sending a 25 megabyte email promoting some sweaters, it's probably not making the inbox here. But is there a tipping point for file size of an email or is it just, do we just kind of stick with the best practice because of load? purposes. Yeah, I've never done deliverability testing to see like at what point does it break or at what point does it redirect to the spam folder because it got too heavy. I haven't done anything along those lines. I, you know, we, we were discussing the other day on some of those sizes and somebody was asking requirements for a 50 meg email and uh, I, you know, obviously for those. And there's Gmail mobile too that's cutting off quite a bit. So it's best practices for us I'm not even sure what our average client is, 10K or I, I don't know. But our thing is just put in the words and point them back to the website, which we like because it shows engagement to Gmail. You know, you're pointing people back to your site, you're getting clicks, you're getting those types of engagement metrics. So don't give everything away in an email. Get people back to your site for obvious reasons. Another myth, which you alluded to, and I think you partially answered this one already, so we might just want to add a little more detail here, but... When I was doing client consulting, I mean, seven years ago, best practices was 60-40 text image ratio. You want to make sure it hits the inbox. And once Google or Gmail started caching images, that just kind of went out the window. It's like, oh, images are fine. But B2B, you might have different instances because you have different filters to hit. Is there a, a negative impact of image having emails versus not having text image ratio? I mean, most emails I get nowadays are, are just mostly images with very little text. But is that something that best practices have just kind of jumped the shark with that thing? Yes, yeah, so a great question. And actually, there was a Gmail just put out, I don't know if you saw it, I meant to ask you in the hallway, but Gmail just put out an article about some new filtering they're doing. And in there, they call out image-only emails as going to be challenged to where you end up. So I thought that was very interesting. Prior to this article, you know, we have clients who send out all image, and it seems to do fine. I'm personally not a fan for several reasons. If people are turning images off by default, you know, in their settings, you just see a blank page. There's no alt tag. You don't know what you're about to open, what picture you're about to see. And we do know for the B2B, you want text in there, friendly text, if you will, to help you out to explain what's in there. And again, for me personally, you want to explain to people what they're about to see. Okay, we got a 20% pair of shoes. Pretty certain you're going to see a pair of shoes when you turn on that image. But I would have answered that differently prior to that email article, but it was very interesting. They said, you know, we're not going to like, and we're starting not to like, very heavy image. Sorry, real quick. And then for, for um, Spam Assassin, for B2B, they will call out, you know, an image-heavy email saying, hey, you got too much. And I don't know the rules on that. I don't know if it's 60-40. I don't really have a rule other than just have some text in there to tell people what at least the email is so you can get that image to turn on. Any theories about why... Gmail is reversing course a little bit. Do you think it's cost control a little bit from server side of caching these things? It seems like everything was going image-based. It was always a pain spot from a consultant side being like, oh, you gotta, you got to put HTML text in there for the images, and then you've got to use bulletproof buttons for this. And it, it was always kind of a pain to code these things. And now we're getting responsive design and everyone's opening their phones and we're expecting people to now read more on smaller devices. It, it seems counterintuitive to me, but they're smart people over there. You know, it's interesting because just our background that I never thought of what you just said. I, I was more of protecting the, the end user from 
unknown or unwanted pictures, you know? So I, I never thought of that part. I was thinking more Gmail trying to protect people from getting an email that's all image and having no idea what it is. I mean, somebody can look at the from line and the, the subject line and kind of, you know, okay, this is coming from ABC shoes. It's probably a shoe, but I, I was with a mindset for, it was more for protection. And the other part is the ISP can't look at the image technically. So they don't know what it is. So if it's all image, they're like, I don't know what this is. I'm about to put in Greg's folder. If there's some text in there, they can read that and say, oh, this is a shoe offer. Oh, this is a transactional. But your points were excellent too. It could very well be that. I, I don't know. So let's talk about this because this probably plays a lot with what we just talked about, but let's talk about IP-based reputation versus domain-based reputation. Which is more important if there is? What kind of balance should be looking for? It used to be, and you would know this a lot better than I did, but we've had conversations offline before about old practices I did at old companies where we were getting spam housed five times a day, right? So it used to be your domain-based reputation was more important than IP, and then it was IP was more important, and then it seemed to shift back to domain. And now it seems almost like it's coming together and it has to be both. Where are we looking at from the current state of affairs from a deliverability standpoint? Yeah, you're right. There was a time it was simply IP-based. AOL, Yahoo, Gmail, or excuse me, uh, AOL, you know, other than Gmail, would see an email coming in and say, and they still do this today, oh, here comes an email from IP 1.2.3. What do I think of that IP? And then Gmail, and I, and I think this is fantastic, said, you know what? I know you guys share IPs out there. So, I don't want to penalize the IP because I know there's multiple senders. So I'm going to look past the IP and look at who the sender is. And they identify that sender by the domain. So, you know, whatever.com. And just a quick thing on that. It's kind of like if you take a house with a landline, you know, and you have four people living in that house, it's one phone number, right? So if, if the son calls AOL, AOL says, here comes a f- call from this phone number. And say the son is prank calling AOL. So AOL blocks that phone. Now the mom, the dad, and the sister can't call AOL because of what that boy did. So Gmail says, I don't want to do that. I don't don't want to penalize the whole family because of the kids. So I'm going to let that call come through from the mom, the dad, and the sister. But I'm going to block that boy. And the way they block that boy is they know his domain, they know his name, and they block boy.com or punish boy.com by putting him in the spam folder. So it's gone from blocking the whole phone number to I'm just going to block that person in the household. But to answer your question specifically, it's Gmail's doing what we're seeing, domain-based reputation. It's very rare. We do see blocks on IPs, but they have to be pretty bad for Gmail to block an IP. Everybody but Gmail is doing IP-based. So there used to be a time, probably back in your old days, you know, if something happened, it was, oh, just swap the IP. We used to swap a lot. Yeah, which was very easy and could be done in seconds. And it still is today. Swapping a domain is a little harder. I mean, Gmail is extremely smart and they can track down, right? You can change your domain, you can change your IP, but your fingerprint as who you are as a marketer pretty much stays the same. And that's why folks are like Gmail are getting a lot better in identifying, oh, Greg, you know, he changed his shirt. He, he changed his name from Greg to gregz.com. You know, they can still track you down a little bit easier. But if your list is 50% Gmail, then you have a 50% domain reputation and you have a 50% IP reputation. Let's go with the domain. So we have, you know, we live in an era where new retailers pop up all the time. So domains are generally newer. How does a newer, maybe you can help me define what newer means, but how do they improve their domain-based reputation if 
they've just not been around long enough. And what what is that timing? Yeah, and th- these are my opinions, but I think Gmail would see a new domain being fired up as sort of guilty. And you got to kind of prove you're legit versus, oh, new domain, yeah, you can go into the inbox. I trust you. Because just like an IP, I, I would imagine most IPs get fired up every day are spammers. So there's just that a guilty association of you need to prove who you are. So we work with clients on a plan where you know we send to Gmail in a methodical way that isn't tricking anybody. It's just to put kind of basically your best foot forward and prove, hey guys, I'm a legit marketer. I want to do this right. And so new domains with no history, you know, we have what we call a warm-up plan where we we slowly introduce that domain to the world and it works very, very effectively. But it, it, it is a slow start. But that's what works. We're going to go ahead. We probably don't need much commentary around this, but I'm going to ask it for the sake of asking. Based on everything you said today, I'm going to assume that simply if you never buy or rent a list, you will have good deliverability. It sounds like that is false. Fair? If you never buy or rent a list, you will have good deliverability. False. We don't have to go into that. If you don't, I think everything you, you've mentioned so far. How about this one? The open is more important than the click. You know, for me, opens are important. There's some debate on there where if some ISPs around privacy can look to see if people are clicking. Uh, you know, there's, well, they can see if you opened it, but are they looking deeper to see if they're clicking? If they are, I, I just feel a click is obviously a much higher engagement. Kind of think of mail you get at home. It's one thing to look at the envelope and open it up. It's another thing to call that number in that ad. So how many people open up that envelope at home versus how many engage in it? To me, the important number is that, that click rate because you're, you're getting people to engage. Not that it open is, but you know some default settings have images on by default. You know, so sometimes you're engaging without doing anything, just right. simply <laughs> clicking on an email. You, boom, you've engaged. Is that a real metric? If I put a piece of paper in front of your face and say, hey, Greg, don't look at this. You know, you're going to look at it. I can say, hey, Greg looked at it, but I, I just threw it in front of your face. So, But the counter argument would be, I had to flip the paper over to look at it, right? So I had to do something. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not an engagement metric, but yeah, I think your question was, which one was more important? And do you view clicks as more important because it's, it's an extra level of yeah. engagement? You know, if I asked you, hey, Greg, do you want the number of people that opened that envelope up or do you want the number of people who called me? I just think that would be the more engagement metric. If you, in a perfect world, if you're looking at client accounts, whatever you do, you had a number from a click rate perspective. So it's going to be click to opens. Do you have a like a number you look at me like, I would love to live in a world where everyone had at least a 20% click rate or a 10% click rate. Do you have that number in the back of your head anywhere? You know, I, I never used to really pay too much attention to click rates because that's more of the offer. You know, my job is, did it get to Gmail and did it get to the inbox? And then I kind of step out. If somebody didn't click on it or do or engage or anything in it outside of opening it, it's kind of outside my world and more back to our strategists on, okay, Chris showed it, made it to their house. They opened it up. Why didn't they call the phone number on that flyer? You know, And that's not so much a deliverability part for me, but obviously the, the higher the clicks. I do look at it in the sense of, wow, they had an 80% open rate but they had a 0.5% click rate. You got to wonder what happened there. The phenomenal subject line um, to get them to open. But I saw many years ago, this client had a ridiculous open rate and a 0% click rate. And the reason why was there was nothing to click on. 
There was no call to action. So they were freaking out saying, we don't have any click-throughs. <laughs> and we found out there was nothing to click on. It was just an ad for a new product. So we had this conversation maybe three months ago, this exact conversation. We were just kind of BSing. And we were all laughing because this happens more than you would think it happens from an email marketer side. It's it's not like, oh, one time a year, they've got a zero. Like this is a somewhat common occurrence. Is that correct? Yeah. And, it, and it's, you know, I like to look at things and something simple like that. Like, gosh, you know, no clicks. What was it? There was no call to action. It was a beautiful picture of the new product. It was some hot wings, you know, but there was nothing to do. So a lot of times, you know, when clients call up and they do ask that question beyond deliverability, like, hey, I got delivered, I got great open rates, but why didn't people do anything? And I like to just kind of like look down into some things that may just be obvious or, or, or just overlooked. Uh, you probably have better examples than me, but it does happen. Sometimes those do relate back to deliverability issues later. So everybody opened it, everybody clicked on it, but what they clicked on maybe took them to a wrong place. It took them to an offer that wasn't what it said. And then now you got people clicking on this as spam. And while it didn't hurt that send at that moment, your, your reputation has been hurt. And now something you may send in three hours from now doesn't get into the inbox. And that sends really good. Or that campaign is really good. But that first campaign, the fallout hurt it. So I, I give this, I used to give this advice when I was consulting, and I still do when I give presentations and things, but this exact point, they'll send messages off to someone, be like, oh, I got a 60% open rate, and their click rate is 1%. So they have clickable content. And a lot of times that is because you're sending to people who bought from you yesterday or two days ago. So they're engaged with you because they just bought something. You're sending an email, they open it, but they just bought. So there's no reason to click on buy new shoes or buy this. That's one of the reasons I, I harp so much on post-purchase messaging with call to actions that are just not to just buy more stuff because you can get a 20% click rate on more targeted and relevant messages because it's more relevant to them. So I like the point there. I'm going to dig into a couple of things you said with a little more detail here. How about some myths that maybe I left off that are kind of common in the industry right now? I mean, some of the ones that we see a lot are kind of around permissions. You know, we're, again, I mentioned the very first thing off the bat, you, you got to have permissions. That's step one. That's your cornerstone. You have to build that on solid permissions. So a lot of times we'll get things like, hey, as long as my lawyers say it's okay to do, I can do it. That, that's a big one. <laughs> they, you know, they'll pay some folks or they'll get their lawyers and they'll read over and say, hey, this is totally legal. I very rarely argue law. I argue best practices. So while the lawyers may say it's okay to do, it's the worst thing to do in a best practice sense. I, I can't go to AOL and say, hey, you can't block these guys. Their lawyers said it was fine. I, I can't do that. And I don't mean to sound sarcastic, but I, I literally have people say, but my lawyers reviewed this and said it was okay. And it just, this is the disconnect and the communication you mentioned about earlier, how important deliverability is, is it's not your lawyer say it's okay to do and the permissions are fine. That gets you into the inbox. It's best practices. So if that send that the lawyer said was good creates high complaints, you're going into the spam folder. A real quick example. I don't know if we talked this one because we have known you a long time, but it may have come up years ago talking to one of the postmasters. I was kind of like, we were talking about spam complaints. I said, hey, look, it's a little rough that you only allow five complaints per 1,000 people we send to. And the, the answer was very clear. Look, if people signed up, you're sending them what you should be sending them. You shouldn't have any complaints. I said, fair enough. But people use it as an unsubscribe link too. They just don't trust unsubscribe links that are in there. 
And, and he said to me, and this has stuck with me, he said to me this back in like 2003, he said, if you send a reverse 911 email out that the neighborhood's burning down and people say it's spam, I will block you. So, and I just looked at him like, wow, you know, the impact to that, that I don't care what you're sending, legal or not, whatever. If people say it's spam, you get blocked, period. End of story. So, so it's tough when, you know, hey, lawyers say it's okay. We should be in the inbox. That's not correct. That puts a really big focus on the marketer to make sure they are buttoned up all the way across their program. Yes. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's common to check in with legal teams and not turn to your ESP and ask a simple best practice, you know, because one, it could save you a lot of money working with the lawyer team to pour through something. So, you know, I wrote a blog many years ago. I think I titled it legal versus best practice. And I said, best practice will win every time, you know, purchase list, worst word you can say in deliverability world, but lawyers may say it's fine to do, but it's the worst thing you can do. So that's a great example of legal versus best practice. Ironically, we used to buy list and then mail lawyers. <laughs> it was always fun answering the phone calls those days. How about some other? Myths? Yeah. So, um, gosh, um, there's thousands of them, but I would say, you know, some people are, would say, hey, just because they didn't open or click it really doesn't mean they still don't want to hear from us. A lot of times we go into an account, we see clients who've sent 500, 1,000 emails to somebody with no engagement, and they refuse to remove that person from their list because they just feel someday you know, that person's going to want to open or click. We talk about the, the age of your list not being relevant. Hey, I found this list that opted in three years ago. We're going to go ahead and send to it maybe throw a, a legal thing in there that lawyers said it was a fine to do. So you kind of got a double whammy, but that's important. Kind of in the line of, uh, I, I, they double opt in, but it's been years. It should be still fine to send to them. It's a corny thing, but I like to say, you know, if you meet somebody one night at a bar and, and get their phone number and you hit it off and you don't call for three years, how's that going to go? And, it, and it, it, I know it, it, people laugh, but it's true, right? Email is a human interaction. If you call that person after three years, it's either who are you, you know, and they hang up or really, Greg, you know, I was really excited for you to call. It's been three years. Unless it was a really good night. And then they'd be like, hey, where, where you been? No, but I, I doubt someone's going to wait three years. <laughs> You're a great guy, but, you know, it's not going to go well. And, 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 you know, if it's email and, you know, they signed up for, you know, information on diapers and it's been four years, that kid's probably in college by now. And it's no longer relevant. So you're back to those, those types of things. So let's go down that path a little bit. Let's say you've done everything right, opted them in, they're engaging with you. A common challenge for retailers is you're always getting new signups, but your legacy subscribers just mature. And it could be one, they've outgrown your product. Diaper is a good example. Lifestyles change, income changes, jobs change. They used to buy suits and now they can wear jeans and a t-shirt to work so they don't need as many suits. How do retailers stay ahead of the curve with maintaining a healthy list when they've done everything right, but their list just matures with age. Yeah. And, and I like to think it's just, it's very natural. Things run its course. You know, we've all signed up for things we were excited about. And then after a certain period of time, it either didn't meet our expectations or we're just not interested anymore. Um, age. So maybe it's the gym and we no longer go to the gym. There's it's, it's natural. I think a lot of the challenges with marketers is they just don't want to let go of the people. You know, they just feel, but they signed up, you know, they, and there's just got to be a time where you got to let it go because in the end, that's going to start hurting you. You know, it's kind of that break up with them before they break up with you right. thing. If you keep holding on to them, you know, because the way they break up with you is they click on this is spam. And remember earlier, I said you're only allowed five per thousand. 
got to start trimming those people. And there's clear signs out there in our app. You can see how many emails we send to people with absolutely zero signs of life. And we, we have clients I've seen 500, 1,000 emails with no signs of life. There's got to be a point where you're like, waste of time, waste of money, waste of effort. And it could be hurting a reputation because we're sending to people who ignore our emails and people could be watching them. So I'm going to get into that in a few minutes because I want to ask you a question about seasonal retailers. And although it, it is seasonal, it would apply to any retailer through the course of the year. I want to follow up on that in a minute. Actually, you know what? I'm going to jump around 20 more times today. Let's actually get into that now. So seasonal retailers, because you said the the lack of opens and lack of engagement will potentially impact your at least inbox deliverability. So when we talk about seasonal retailers, and I used to come across this, think about Halloween costumes or uh, Christmas decorations or whatever it might be. They kind of have their main season one time a year, and then it's nine months of tangible sales. But I mean, it's, it's 10% of their sales the rest of the year. And most people are, are glued into opening your emails that one time a year. For them, and I used to consult some of them, deliverability was always a challenge the other nine months. And it was a fight to stay out of the bulk folder or the spam folder. How do seasonal retailers, and this would certainly apply to everyday retailers that just have unengaged contacts going there, how do they maintain a healthy deliverability standpoint when their business model is predicated upon one or two months of marketing and 10 months kind of off? To me, Greg, that's the hardest question because you have to be careful how you reply because you don't want it to sound like you have a bad product. People only buy it once a year, but it's, it is what it is, right? You know, people only buy a $10,000 watch once every who knows how many years. Back earlier, we were talking about you know, when I purchased a car, I was getting emails instantly. Like that night, I started getting emails from that dealership, from that brand. Would you like to buy a car? And I, and I thought to myself, am I really your target right now? Like I just bought an overpriced car from you. I, I don't want to buy another one. But they were just pounding me with email to buy a car. And I think what they did is just got excited that, ooh, you know, hey, we got somebody who, who likes us so much. He bought a car. Maybe he wants another one. But then I thought, well, how could they keep me engaged? I'm probably going to have the car. You know, it was a three-year lease. How do they keep me engaged during that time? Because I'm not going to buy from them for three years. But you think about stuff like maintenance, maybe. You know, like, hey, we, we have a, uh, a deal on an oil change. Or, hey, we have a deal on this. Or floor mats. Or car wash. When you kind of keep me engaged in there. But I, I personally just don't think... I'm in the market. And, and at some point, you're going to upset me enough where I will unsubscribe because you just, you're showing zero interest in me. You just want to sell the car, you know, show some loyalty to it. Blinds. You know, we were talking about this one last week that people buy blinds every, well, when they move, or if you're in house for a long time, you know, I don't, five, 10 years, how do you keep people engaged during the buying seasons of those products? And it, it's a challenge. And, and the challenge there too is, you know, some of the ISPs we know, you can send me 10 emails a day for the rest of my life. They'll put it into my inbox. As long as I say it, it's not spam or unsubscribe, but they're just like, yep, inbox, inbox. But some ISPs will be like, no, I'm not going to do that. At some point, I realize Chris is just deleting those. He's made it very clear he doesn't want them. I'm going to do Chris a favor and put it into a spam folder. So back to your question, if I buy every December 1st, how do I keep that person engaged and not ignore my emails all during the rest of the year to the point where come November, one of the ISPs goes, you know what? 
Chris is just not reading these. I'm going to put into a spam folder, yet I'm three weeks away from making a big purchase from them, but I'm not getting those emails anymore because they emailed me in a season I was showing no interest. So what would your advice to those people be? Because this is a really tough, I mean, there's no, there's no one right or wrong answer here in my opinion, but this is a really tough thing because let, let's use blinds because chances are if you're a blind company, unless you only sell blinds, but if you're selling blinds, chances are you might have other furniture accessories or things that they can buy through the rest of the year. They just don't need blinds, but you might not need that stuff for three months. If you drop them to a lower cadence, say, hey, they just bought something, we're going to send them once a week as opposed to four times a week. You run the risk of that person needing a matching duvet cover or something. Is that a real thing? You're asking the wrong Duvet's person. a real thing. I don't know if they have covers or not. But you need another cover to match the, the blinds or whatever, So or the curtains. How do you balance how much you should send that person versus, hey, let's just do once a month until we get to the busy season and we'll hit them over the head, but at least we're not constantly sending emails that are being ignored or deleted. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm shaking my head because I, I just don't, don't know. That's why I said it, it's a tough question. You know, you got to keep that balance of keeping them interested and engaged without overwhelming them. And that's another word I, I usually throw in, which is perception. You know, a lot of people say, hey, I haven't sent to this list in a year. How do you think it's going to go? And I don't know. I don't know if people are going to be super excited to hear from you again, or we're back to that, you know, bar situation where, you know, you call somebody out of the blue. I just don't know. And I've seen it go both ways. I've seen it being a disaster and people's reputation tanks and we're talking weeks to get it repaired. Or I've seen it go fantastically well. It's just a really tough one. I don't know what people's perception is going to be on that email, you know, in the off seasons, again, kind of back to maintenance, maybe send me cleaning materials for those blinds or whatever you mentioned, the duvet cover. Duvet cover. <laughs> I'm going to Google if that's a real thing afterward. You could tell, you could tell who does the, yeah. the decorating in my house. Same here, but it's a tough one. It is a really, really hard one. When we work with clients who sell, you know, the average buy is one to three years and they're pumping out emails every day. Again, to, to some of the ISPs, it doesn't matter. It'll just continue to go in the inbox. But to some ISPs, they're going to notice it and be like, yeah, you know, we gave you 40 chances. It's not working. Let's call it. Now, segmentation comes into play, too. I'm amazed at how many marketers don't know if they're saying to a male or female. Those types of things where if you sell both male and female products, maybe you can start to break those types of things down. And one of the examples I use is I, I buy my cycling clothing through one brand. And they have not figured out yet after seven years, I only buy one brand. So on emails that aren't my brand, they have a 0% open, 0% click, and a 100% trash. When I get an email with that brand, they have a 100% open rate, they have a 100% click rate, and they probably got a 50% conversion rate on me, but they haven't figured that out yet. They continue to send me brands I just don't even bother with. So they're sitting on all that data. They just refuse to use it to their advantage of, let's send a little bit smarter and let's try and avoid all those 15 other brands Chris isn't interested in. So instead of Chris getting 16 emails, he's just going to get one. And I think that's where marketers have a hard time of, you mean to tell me I can only send one email to Chris? Well, those other 15 are a waste of time and it's hurting your reputation. So two things here. One, Stan's in the room with us. So Stan, he's probably one of the most fashionable guys I know. Is, is a duvet cover a real thing? I have no idea. He doesn't know. I'm going to assume that. <laughs> Three guys in the room. I'm going to assume those. I'm going to Google it just like you. <laughs> All right. So the second thing, is, and this is more just a, a story than anything, but I used to give a couple of years ago, I 
did it for uh, a few months, but I gave this, this presentation on why your email program sucks. And there was a national retailer who, when I signed up, asked for a very simple segmentation, mail for email. So I gave them mail. Three days later, I get a managed preference message as part of the welcome series. Same thing, male or female, didn't carry over my choice. I filled it out, selected male again. Seven days later, so it was 11 days from the time I signed up to the time I got my very first promotional email. And that very first promotional email was how to wear a skirt at work. And it was trying to sell me skirt things. I'm like, this is 11 days. And I told you I was a male twice and nothing. Which explains why you have a skirt on today. Exactly. That's a great case of collecting the right data. <laughs> and then obviously not using it. Not using it, yeah. You know, I spoke at a conference years ago and there's a couple hundred people in there. And I asked them, are you sending to a male or female? Three people raised their hand. And I just thought that was stunning that, you know, how personal email is and how custom it should be. And nobody knows if they're sending to a male or female. It right. is, to me, very stunning because we talk about engaging emails. And, you know, how can you send me a relevant email? You know, more around clothing. I mean, if it's movie tickets. But if you're selling clothing and you don't know if I'm a male or female, there's going to be a point where I love your brand, but I keep getting ladies' jeans offers. And, you know, again, back to my first statement, you had my permission. You even triple opted me in. I even gave you my social security number. But now you're sending irrelevant emails. I'm out of here. And because I don't trust that unsubscribe link, I'm hitting this as spam. How about, we're going to talk about myths that I didn't cover before. Any myths that we haven't talked about that you really think is is important to know? I, there's many, but I, I'm trying to think. It all comes back to the myths around permissions. Like, well, they bought a t-shirt from me. Of course they want marketing emails from me. They, they bought a t-shirt from me. But a great example is I bought my mom a coat. I won't mention the, the brand, but I you know, it was a lady's magazine. I bought it from her. And you know, I'm getting emails daily on elderly women's clothing. And it's a great example of I was just buying a gift. E- even those uh, adult toy, sometimes it's just a gift. And if now all of a sudden they're getting all these emails, they may even bought it from their work address. And so they're getting all these emails, marketing emails for adult toys to their work address. You know, some of those things can can backfire on it. So just because somebody buys from you or has some form of relationship doesn't give you the right to automatically start sending them emails. And I think that's probably one of the biggest ones and the biggest misconception of, well, why did this go wrong? They bought from me. Of course they want to hear from me. And it goes terribly wrong. Let's talk about ways to improve reputation. Say you have a client that, you know, maybe their practices weren't a hundred percent or maybe it's a seasonal retailer that was just sending a lot through the rest of the year and they started getting bulk foldered or to the point of the person that, hey, you know, we made some mistakes. We want to clean it up. We've been working on it, but we need to improve what we're doing. And IP reputation can certainly be a benefit if you're switching ESPs or something or changing IPs. Domain-based reputation, you're kind of guilty by association for a little bit. What are some remediation steps that retailers can, can follow to help improve their deliverability standing? Yeah, so, I mean, the one that works every time is cleaning your list and cleaning in the sense of removing those folks we talked about earlier who you've sent for three years with no opens no clicks start pulling those unengaged people out because they're the ones generating the complaint rates and so that's typically step one what is your kind of baseline if you have one for what unengaged means is it is it like a 30-day span is it really based on how often you're sending the people right if you send four times a month and you're going 30 days, you give them four opportunities. Well, it's a question you have to look at not only volume, cadence, but time. 
So, I mean, if you send once a year, you know, you can't say, well, you know, I mean, technically in five years, they haven't opened one out of five emails, which is, you know, that's fine, but it's been five years. But if they're sending five a day, <laughs> you know, that's, that's the opposite. So I, I don't have a set number. I, it really depends on the product. You know, seasonal people, you got to get it longer. You know, I see people with cosmetics and, you know, those types of things. I, I don't know what the buying time is on those, but, you know, they're sending very, very, very frequent, you know, which kind of comes back to, and, and you, I know you've preached this a lot with the preference center. That's one of my favorite things is when people sign up, let them, give them a menu and let them choose when they want to hear from you. And you don't decide when you think they want to hear from you. Let them say, you know what, I love your stuff, but once a week is, is perfect. Not, you know, I want this every single day or three times a day because there's going to get that point where you're just too annoying. Do you want it now? 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 You know, they're gone. Not because of your product, but you just oversend them. You saturated them with emails. Yeah, and time and resources for marketers. I think that the preference centers are always a challenge for because you might get these people that say, you know, it can be somewhat problematic to either manage or to just the segment in general, male, female. I need two creatives. I don't have the creative resources at my disposal to send that. So I batch and blast, which, I mean, we live in a batch and blast world. We need to accept that, but there's ways to do it better than, than others. You know, snooze options, I've always been a fan of where pause me for 30 days, right? As opposed to unsubscribing, but at least you let them choose that break they want to take at that point, And then you can get back into the inbox, but it helps kind of clean that a little bit, but keeps them engaged. And that, maybe a seasonal retailer that, hey, snooze me for four months, right? And you can even automate that process and say, hey, if they click this, pull them off here for four months and throw them back on or whatever. It yeah. Might be, so. it's, and you know this too, but it's to pause somebody, right? It's, you're kind of back to, there's a mentality out there that revenue is down, send more. Right. And that will make us pull our hair out every time in, in the deliverability world because that's the worst thing you can do, in our opinion. You're having issues because you're having either a connection issue or a permission issue. But let's say your permissions are fine. You're just oversaturating people. That's the problem. And now you're sending even more. You're just pouring fuel onto that fire. So trying to tell somebody, hey, slow it down or pause kind of goes against some of the Google searches you can do under like maybe law. I haven't done it, but you know, revenue is down in email. What do I do? There's probably a zillion articles out there. Send more. And, I, and I've heard people say it directly. I've heard it too. Yeah. And we literally cringe and pull our hair when we hear that because we're like, no, revenue is down because you're now in the spam folder because you've been oversending to begin with. Now you want to send even more. It, it just, it's, it's, it's going in the wrong direction. So it, it's the right answer. But it's a really tough challenge. We also live in a uh, omni-channel world now. We talk about reputations and consent and implied consent. So we talk about things like, you know, you go to point of sale. We were talking about this earlier, but you go to point of sale, you're buying something. Hey, want an e-receipt or do you have an email? They just, a lot of times, will just say, do you have an email address? So you give them the email address. A lot of those people are either expecting a receipt and getting more. They are maybe thinking it's a loyalty program. Maybe they are not assuming they were being opted into an email program. What are some best practices when stores, and this doesn't have to be a store, it could be a pop-up shop, it could be an event you're sponsoring, but collecting a real-world email address and then facilitating that into the email program. What are some best practices around that? Sure. So POS is, I mean, you know, the in-store sign-up is a great way to get email addresses, but it can backfire big time. So, you know, your question on how's it done right, you know, uh, I'll start with how not to do it. One is not disclosing what you're collecting it for, 
The other is asking for an email address with zero incentive, right? So if I say, hey, Greg, you know, well, you know, is this it? You're ready to check out. Hey, how would you like 20% off right now? And you're like, yeah, that's great. What do you need? I just need your email address and I'll give it to you right this second. And you give me, you know, Greg is awesome at Greg is awesome.com. I'm like, oh, that is my email address. Yeah, see? And I'm like, oh, okay. And you get 20% off. You walk out and you're never going to hear from me because that email address doesn't exist because I gave you zero incentive to provide me with a legit address. Same thing. If I walk up to you on a street and say, Hey, Greg, give me your phone number and I'll give you a hundred dollars right now. And I don't verify your phone number. It's foolish on my part. You walk away with a hundred dollars and you gave me the five, 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 one, two, one, two. So provide an incentive of, Hey, Greg, I'll give you a hundred dollars. If you know, when you get home, you text me. Now there's a reason to provide that legit address. So a lot of times people just do that. Another danger to it is just simply human error, which is a typo. Years ago, there, there was an anti-spam agency who was kind of keeping a close eye on this, that if you did a typo, maybe Greg at AOLL.com. Hoy mail. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And you sent a receipt. They didn't care about that. It was then all of a sudden they start getting marketing emails. You are dead. And we saw big issues across the industry with them doing that because they were like, look, we'll give you that one e-receipt. And it was a human error. You typed it in wrong, email. But why are you sending marketing emails now? I mean, it was a little over aggressive, but you can run into some spam issues, spam traps by people just simply misspelling the domain by typo. So we think the best practice you could possibly do in an instance like that is just implement a double opt-in for those folks and let them consent. Is that the best thing to do? Yeah. Because again, you, you want to validate and provide a, a legit reason. Hey, we're going to send you additional coupons or you know, back to the store. Hey, Greg, how would you like 20% off your next visit? And then go home, sign up on the webpage where you type it in and maybe a double opt-in. But you know, just handwriting names down. You know, we talk about events. I don't know if we're going to touch on sweepstakes, but you know, that's a whole other animal too. My, my two cents on sweepstakes is people are there to win the car. They're not there to sign up for marketing emails, but it's a great opportunity to build your list, but it's, it's the last reason people were at a sweepstakes was sure. to get emails. Let's talk transactional messages for a minute. So there's, I think, always been a debate around, should you send your transactional messages, which order confirmation, shipping confirmations through the same IP as your promotional messages, or should you keep them separate? And there's arguments on both sides. Well, if they're highly read messages because people just ordered something, they're checking them. So it helps your open rate if you send them from the same IP which theoretically should help your promotional messages. On the flip side, if you start getting bulk mailed one, you're getting bulk mailed for your transactional messages, they might get PO'd at your company. On the caveat to that, they might say, well, if it's a transactional message and it's going to bulk mail, then I check my bulk mail, I hit save sender, which then puts me back into the inbox. What's your advice on transactional messages from promotional IPs? Separate them or keep them together? I would separate them. You know, years ago, when I came to Bronto, it was one of the first things I asked to change. I'm like, hey, can we offer a different IP for transactional and the marketing? I thought it was a great idea. We did it. And nobody <laughs> for years uh, took us up on that offer until years later. All of a sudden, we started seeing a bunch of people realizing, hey, you know what? My marketing emails are causing my transactional emails to go in a spam folder. And one case was it was a company selling concert tickets and they were trying to get these tickets to people who were literally online. Like, hello, where's my, my ticket? I can't get in. And a marketing campaign two days earlier had fried their domain or excuse me, their IP. So they couldn't get these transactional emails through. So it's kind of a, 
um, both sides, you know, the, the, the story to it where, you know, your transactional emails can help your marketing, but at the same time, your marketing can hurt your transactional. So you just have to figure out, do you want to borrow reputation from yourself to carry your marketing? If you are having issues, I mean, you know, you shouldn't be, but if you are, but if you're asking my opinion, I would have a separate IP for transactional as marketing. And I would even take it another step and say to have a separate domain for your transactional. Because remember with Gmail, half your list now is being determined by your domain. So, you know, not to plug it, but we literally rolled that out, I think today, where you can now have a different domain for transactional than your marketing within the app. Interesting. So this will probably be, I don't know, that, that probably rolled out about a month ago, I'd say. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, we're not publishing this today, so it's about a month old. A couple questions, then we're going to get to some fun stuff. Aggressive email providers. In your opinion, what's the most aggressive email provider when it comes to bulk mailing contacts? Most aggressive provider? Um, definitely Gmail, because I think they're doing it right in the sense of, you know, back to the IP reputation. It simply comes down to, are you generating complaints or aren't you? It's very black and white. I think Gmail's taken a little bit more that, yeah, you know, you may send out 100,000 emails, get no complaints, but you also got no opens, no clicks. Everyone deleted it. And I, I think Gmail's looking at that saying, really, Greg? Yeah, no one's complaining, but no one's reading your email. So send more. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Put in cool pictures of Craig. Uh, so, you know, I really think there's that piece there of not only do you have to just send email, but it has to be engaging. And I like that because it kind of gets rid of the, oh, it's Friday, hurry up, send an email, just send it because it's Friday. It has to go back to that segmentation we were talking about. Not only do you force to send an email out, but be smart about it. And I think that's what Gmail is kind of stepping up to do to say, hey, folks, I'm not just going to sit here and wait for complaints to determine if you're a good sender. I'm going to look at other factors and determine if you're a good sender. I think it's great because it really challenges marketers to start stepping up with what they're sending and think about it carefully. I don't think it's going to hurt marketers. They have all that data. They should have all that data to figure out, gosh, Greg buys every Friday. He buys a gray shirt every Friday. Let's send him an offer for a gray shirt on Thursday. Let's not send him women tennis shoes on Monday. It's just not the pattern. So I like it. It's challenging to marketers, but I like what they're doing. It really helps the industry, you know, in regards to online marketing. Well, it keeps you employed too, which I guess always helps. All right. One more question for you. So if you're a retailer, you find yourself being bulk mailed a little bit, maybe it just started, maybe you've been going through it for the last month or so. You have good policies, good opt-in lists. What are some of the first steps they should do? Again, we look at two places you're you're falling apart. It's, It's permissions or it's the relevance. So we would look at permissions and say, did anything change there? Yeah, we added a sweepstakes list in. Uh, there you go. Nope, we're still doing double opt-in. Everything's great. And then we have to kind of go, okay, so you got strong permissions. People are clearly raising their hands saying, I want to hear from Greg. Then we've got to look at, well, well what, what, is, what is Greg sending you? Something's off in regards to permissions or that relevancy piece. You know, the, the folks I, I always say I never talk to have strong permissions and strong engagement. We never talk to those people. They're doing it right. Their, their products may be once a year. I don't know how they're doing it, but they're keeping them engaged and they're keeping clean. When you stray from permissions, you stray from relevancy, that's when we start to see issues and we go back to basics, permissions, and sending relevant content. Very cool. You got a couple minutes to stick around yes. for some fun questions. What, what's your favorite thing about what you do? Uh, helping people. 
I, I love the challenge of somebody calling and saying, hey, we're being blocked, we're being blacklisted, we're being this. I love digging into seeing what caused it to help them learn. I do not just say, oh, sure, we'll take care of that. You know, if they're hitting spam traps, oh, sure, we'll go take care of those traps. I like to learn how did those traps get in there so we don't come across this again. So it's more than just fixing it. It's educating them on, hey, this is what caused it. Let's not do that again. Here's how. That will help the, the, the community in the sense of keeping legit mail into the inbox, getting rid of spammers and not allowing them to do the damage they're doing because the more spam gets into the inbox, it hurts our marketing partners. So it, it, it's helping people and educating them on these types of things. I love this call. I appreciate it because I've never been asked these questions <laughs> and they're very simple, but they're extremely important because so many people ask, what, what do you do? And I try and explain it to them. And it's hard to explain because it's so important. People just say, well, don't people just hit a send button and that's it? You know, there's so much more to it. And you have to know all these types of things. So when you're at a cocktail party and you tell someone what you do is 100% of the time is the answer you get. Oh, so you help spammers? 100%. Thought so. I figured as much. (laughs) Including my family. (laughs) Chris, is a hot dog a sandwich? No. Why not? I'm from Jersey. So a sandwich is salami and ham and provolone. Fair enough. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? No. Why not? Does it come on during Christmas? All the time. This is actually a really common debate. I, I saw it once when it came out, which was many, many years ago, so I'm aging myself. But There's somewhat of a Christmas theme to it. It's set during yeah, Christmas time, it, it I is, guess. But no. I mean, I, I don't compare that to Miracle on 42nd Street or Rudolph, so I'm old-fashioned. I'm, I'm more of the family. What's your view on brunch? Thumbs up or thumbs down? On brunch? Yeah. Thumbs down. Down? I like you. Yep. I like to go from the eggs and bacon right to the Jersey sandwich at lunch. There you go. Do you find it weird that people make the argument to say, well, it's breakfast food at lunchtime? Like, I find it weird. I'm like, there's a, there's a thousand restaurants that do that. I mean, I'll eat anytime, but I, I don't schedule brunch. I, I don't. That's a good point. I, I schedule my morning and right after I eat breakfast, I'm looking forward to lunch. And right after lunch, I'm looking forward <laughs> to dinner. <laughs> what is in your pockets right now? Um, my Oracle card, my, uh, travel card and my hotel room card. Is it wallet? Nothing? No. Do you carry a wallet? I do not. Money clip or do you just put stuff in your pockets? Put stuff in European man bag. I don't have a man bag. (laughs) So you just put stuff in your, like money just goes right. Yes. Just like that. That's exactly what my pocket looks like. I've never lost anything either. That's the craziest thing. You have any guilty pleasures, TV show, music, unusual hobbies? (sighs) No. I have a food addiction to cheese. Do you have a favorite type of cheese? Brie. I'm French, so it's my kryptonite. Okay. So I normally ask people to name as many somethings as they can in 15 seconds. I was going to ask you fish. This is not the first time I'm going to ask this question, which just sounds really weird, but I'm going to ask you to name as many cheeses as you can in 15 seconds. You ready? Sure. Go. Camembert, Brie, Rochefort, Cheddar, Swiss, Gouda. Parmesan, Romano, Provolone. Time's up. Wow. Get nine. Hey. That's good. I was getting anyone that can get one something every two seconds to me is good. good. The last guy I asked this was, uh, he was from Wisconsin. I was like, oh, he, he might have beat him. I think I got cheddar in there. I'm not sure if he did. I think I did. See, you should have said cheddar. Chris, any questions for me? No, I, I just really appreciate the opportunity because, again, you know, I remember years ago 
actually nine years this April when, uh, when I was hired, we were 30 some people and, um, I was invited to a sales meeting and my boss at the time we were talking, we had a whiteboard and sales was writing all the differential with us and our competitors. And I'm just sitting there and I'm, I'm a week into the job. So I'm not saying a word. And everyone's writing, you know, we're this, we're that, we're this, you know, we're awesome. And I'm sitting back there just cringing, going, when is somebody going to say deliverability? And I, and I didn't want to speak up because, you know, again, I'm new. And finally, my boss goes, hey, what about deliverability? That's pretty important. And I'm like, okay, this is a cool boss, you know, <laughs> and this is a great company because everyone's like, oh, yeah. Um, so it kind of has that thing of we know it's there and we we know it's important, but it's, it's just that un seen thing. But, you know, I hope today's discussion kind of helps people out to realize it's more than just, you know, uh, this is a military term, fire and forget, you know, where you press the fire, you know, those missiles and you're moving on to the next target, you know, deliverability, you got to really pay attention to the whole process of it being delivered. And then looking at the metrics to that send to determine, you know, your next button that you're going to hit for send to make sure it it gets there. So I, I really appreciate the time. You're very welcome, by the way. I appreciate your time. Uh, you took time out of your day to do this, so I, I certainly do appreciate it. You know, it's one of those things, you never know what you have until it's gone, right? And I, again, I, the, the adult industry podcast that I was talking about, I think it's episode 45, they're a Bronto customer, and I had them in studio. They came in from Atlanta, and there was two guys there, and we're talking. They had the opposite thing. They were with a different provider. They didn't know they didn't have deliverability until they came here, and they saw the deliverability hit, and it went through the roof. And like, it wasn't the thing that you didn't know you had until it's gone. They just never knew they didn't have it. And then they switched over and they're like, oh, that's how it should be. Uh, so it, it was the opposite for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to so many people there. Well, since coming to Bronto, my spam complaints are through the roof. And I like to tell them, I said, that's because you're in the inbox now, <laughs> you know, which is a double-edged sword. People weren't seeing your email to complain. Now that you're in the inbox, people see it and they're going to start complaining, which is good because you're ripping off the Band-Aid right. and it's going to happen. And people are like, oh, yeah. I said, that's a good sign. That means you're in the inbox now. So, um, you know, I, I like to hear those stories because sure. it's, it's, you know, and it's, it's one of the things that, you know, and I'm not saying just simply coming to us, but there's been many, many stories where, where we've helped people out like that, you know, so that, that adult company you're talking about, we worked very closely with them. They were very open to, hey, whatever you guys tell us to do, we're going to follow. And again, I've never talked to them since, which is a good sign. And they've been doing phenomenal, but they came in and said, we're all ears. You guys are the experts. You tell us what to do. And they did it. And it's a phenomenal story. They've done a lot of cool things with the program too, just how they target people and and what they've built. So smart marketing. Yeah. Funny guys too, by the way. So that's probably a teaser question there is what's the one time that having your emails marked as spam is probably a good thing. We can use that later. If people want to reach out to you, Chris, can they reach out to you? LinkedIn, Twitter, email address? What's your preference there? Um, Probably just my email address here at Pronto. Okay. We'll stick in the show notes, the episode description. So if they want, they can go to the episode description and get there. So Chris Kopenschlag, everyone, Director of Deliverability here at Bronto. Chris, thank you for your time. To those listening, especially our listener of the week, Isabella from Santa Monica. Let me know you're tuned in if you want to be the listener of the week. And if you're interested in telling your e-commerce or email marketing story, I'd love to hear from you as well. So feel free to reach out to me. Until next time, have a great day and please be kind to one another.